Hello and welcome to this OPO podcast. My name is Martin Cordiner and I'm the Head of Research at the College of Optometrists. 2015 is the 90th year of ophthalmic and physiological optics, otherwise known as OPO, so it seemed a good time to sit down and talk about the journal, its impact and the development of optometric and optical research generally. To do that, I'm joined by the William Hartnell and Patrick Troughton of OPO, the first and second editors of the journal. Professor Neil Charman, currently Emeritus Professor at the University of Manchester, was the inaugural editor from 1980 to 1987, and Professor of Optometry Bernard Gilmartin of Aston University led the journal from 1988 to 2000. They have kindly agreed to share their thoughts with us about the past, present and future of optometric research. Gentlemen, welcome. Okay, so firstly, uh, let's take us back to how you each came to be editing the journal, uh, which of course in your case, Neil, was also how the journal sort of came to be in its current form, really. So could you tell us a bit about that process of how it got started and how you came to be involved? Well, I came into optometry in 1970 as a person with a background in physics. And um, at that stage, of course, it wasn't many years since undergraduate degrees had started in optometry. And there was a great desire, I think, in all teaching departments to get research underway um, in fields related to optometry and vision sciences. So in those first few years between in the 1970s, I um, was keen and managed to produce um, a certain amount of research, some of which appeared in uh, the British Journal of Physiological Optics, as it then was. Now, towards the end of the 1970s, of course, the college was starting to appear on the horizon and talk amongst the founding members, the SMC, the, the uh, BOA, BOA and others involved about the future and um, they decided that it would be a good idea to rebadge the old BJPO partly because publishers desired to have international journals rather than purely British journals um, and partly too to give a new uh, direction, a new impetus uh, which was appropriate to the formation of the new college. And um, for reasons which I'm not privy to, they were kind enough at least to invite me to come along for interview, and so I went along to interview, and although I'm sure there were other candidates, the buck was passed to me. So at that point then, of late, I suppose, 1979, I finished off the last volume of the British Journal of Physiological Optics, uh, which was a little sad. Um, it was a noble name. It had been running for, what, 60 years or so more? But uh, it was, of course, the opportunity to start the new ophthalmic and physiological optics. And so from that point, from, with really hardly any papers in hand, um, we got going on um, trying to um, create this new journal and an identity for the new journal. Certainly at that time, I felt that what optometry, and specifically United Kingdom optometry, wanted was a journal that would encourage not only the professional researchers, if you like, in the universities, but also the people in practice to interest themselves in the progress of this whole subject area. And that, for me, has always been the thing. I've always wanted to see ophthalmic and physiological optics not only delve into the minutiae of vision sciences, but also 
to cover material which, um, even though they might not follow in detail, the ordinary person in practice can appreciate the benefit of and enjoy reading. And so, um, so that it remains firmly rooted in the profession as well as um, more basic matters. And Bernard, uh, skips forward sort of uh, eight years, how did you come to be involved in editing the journal yourself? Well, I started optometry in 1965 at City University graduating in 1968 and in fact my final year dissertation was published in BJPO um, and that sort of gave me a taste for the whole business of research and publishing. In fact it was with Dr Paul Turner from St Bartholomew's Hospital and it was on chlordiase epoxide and hand-eye coordination because a lot of people in those days were taking as it was called a mother's little helper before a driving test and the there was some concern that this might affect performance. So that really got me going. I should say I did that in conjunction with my colleague David Austin, who's in my years, who's a very well-known optometrist in, uh, in Leicestershire. So then into pre-registration year, then thoughts about doing uh, a PhD, which um, I did at City University again with, with a physicist, Dr Charles Patchum, in fact. And then some years in practice... Um, thinking about what to do with myself, having given me some sort of an academic profile. And then John came up at Aston in 1974, so I continued on in academic life. Um, and an opportunity came up to edit the journal. Um, Neil has given some of the background there, which uh, I have to say, with some trepidation, I thought I'd have a go at this, being young and <laughs> naive, possibly, um, because Neil had done such a fantastic job it, has to be said, um, and done everything from scratch. Anyway, I remember sitting um, in his office on a very foggy um, afternoon in February in 1987, and um, he was so kind and helpful, and coming away with this wodge of notes on how to edit a, a journal, and so so that was it really. And um, my first job was to develop the uh, base that Neil had developed particularly on the international side of the journal submissions because that, that, was a, that was a task that really needed, a continuing task that needed to be addressed to, to not only have a national profile but to have an international profile as well. Yes, I would have to say that um, I think we all knew that the journal had arrived when the numbers of overseas contributions started to match the numbers of home. That's right. Uh, and this is where establishing a track record is important, of course. People have to see, it. actually, this is a journal that it's worth publishing in, that yeah. people will recognise and, uh, and, and say, read the paper. say as well there that on, in that transition phase, I think, Neil, was Pergamon with you from 80 to 87? Yes, yeah, before. and then we had a transition from Pergamon to Butterworth Heinemann. Mm. This is their publisher. The publisher. Mm. Uh, and of course, optometrists will recognise Butterworth as being a major textbook producer at that time. Well, they still are. So, and they were very supportive. They were very, Sudili in particular was very helpful there, and um, the journal got off to a very good start. But I, th I think credit has to be given to the college all the way through from the oh, 1980s. Absolutely, yes, yes, absolutely. Um, because it was new territory in many ways. And a lot was going on in 1980, not with regard just to um, publication of a journal, but the whole profile of supporting research mm -hmm. was, mm -hmm. was uh, Don Laran, I remember, had a lot of input into yes, it. Yes, yes. 
And I have to admit, when I was editor, I don't know whether it's the same with you, of course we started small, yes. slightly smaller formats and less papers. There's three issues. And, uh, that's right, three issues. And I pushed as much as I could into it because to expand it in the poor college had to therefore deal with correspondingly higher page charges yeah, and so, so And so there was always bubbling <laughs> away, remote from me, fortunately, uh, the question of where the money was coming yes, from. Yes, a lot was, a lot was uh, going on. Print costs, for some reason, and, I, and it, the reason escapes me now, for some reason the print costs were very high in the 90s, and Bob Chappelle, the treasurer, would you know, it'd be the same discussion <laughs> at, at all, of, all of these meetings. But, but the, again, Bob Chappelle was very supportive. The whole college team were very supportive. So I think due credit to you know, the vision at that time, and I think we're reaping the rewards now very much so. So you were talking there about when the number of international papers sort of began to match the number of other papers. What sort of time was that? Can you roughly remember? Mm. I would have said, uh, without <laughs> actually having checked, that um, it was around the um, time you took over, Bernard, that yeah. sort of time. Yeah, okay. By then, we'd, I mean, we'd had, it wasn't that they were completely absent before, but that um, towards the end of the 80s, that it was beginning to be a serious contender amongst the... Um, what then were a slightly more limited number, was a slightly more ni- limited number of um, competing journals, like the American Journal of Optometry, the Australian, the Canadian. So. so to set the scene at that particular time, this is a time, as you say, where there's sort of more British papers for this, what was then, uh, the legacy was a, a British journal. How do you think optometry is sort of developed from there as an academic discipline? I mean, at that time, if it was a bit more sort of British-based, and then it actually developed to the point where it was becoming more international. How do you think that actually happened? Well, I think it started, optometry started developing with the introduction of degrees. Um, so you go back, I think you'd have to go back that far. That led to the PhDs and the postdocs, serious applications for research funding. So the process really kicked off in the middle 60s, 70s. Uh, yes, but, I think around again, probably in the 1980s, started this process that certainly in the UK teaching departments you started to have PhD students, mm-hmm. you started to have research-minded staff. I mean, in the case of Manchester in the 1960s, there was really only about one full-time member of staff yes. who taught more or less the entire course, Harry Martin, and uh, one or two young demonstrators and lots and lots of part-time people in practice. So, by, But by the 1980s there was a solid research base, if you like, mm-hmm. going on. And I think inter- attendance at international conferences yes. and so on, a number of people going from here across to the uh, American Academy meetings, for example, yes. meetings on topics like myopia yes. and the ARVO. Um, general vision science meetings all started to really attract people and I think everybody became more internationally minded basically. My recollection is that the Americans started to get interested in us. Now there may be a subplot there as it were (laughs) in using the term optometry. I I think some, maybe I've got this wrong here, but when we started calling ourselves optometrists and that became part of, shall we say, the vernacular, um, I think then the Americans, I don't think they really understood ophthalmic optics. Uh, yeah, it's always been a problem, I think. Yeah. Yes. Which, which was yes. the original title. Yes. 
in the early days they thought of calling them optologists, optologists. and that's various other mouthfuls of one sort or another. And a common name does help, there's no doubt about yes, it. Right. Um, but it also, I mean, there are so many parallel events and individuals and so on. General Westheimer, for example, mm -hmm. became an FRS and he started life off as an optometrist. Uh, Fergus Campbell was a FRS from Cambridge, who was a very great supporter of yes, the country. Was, yes, so yes. we started to have the awareness level started increasing. Uh, uh, this is for the discipline as a whole, and of course that fed through to to, to the to the publications and, and and the status of the journal. So, do you think the increasing international element increased the? the scope of, of yeah. what the research could be and allowed everyone to sort of see the possibilities and effectively to, to sort of raise their game. Yes, I think, I think you could put it yes, that way. Yes, yeah. I mean, I think if you go back to the early years of the BJPO, <coughs> the founders, far-sighted as they were in 1925, but certainly in the short term, what they were trying to do was, was to publish accounts of the meetings they'd had in mm -hmm. London and elsewhere, um, <laughs> rather than actually to sponsor a great deal of new re research. But as the years went on, even in the 1930s, they were beginning to encourage um, new developments. And um, certainly one of my favourite papers in the old BJPO is the article by a gentleman called Collins, who's mm -hmm. probably not known to that many people, but who invented uh, an infrared refraction instrument, yes. um, which was a complete pioneer mm -hmm. and remained 40 years ahead of its time. The um, basis of all auto-refractors yeah, now. Yes, um, and it's exactly the, mm -hmm. the principles. So there were some outstanding novel papers. And I, I, um, Mancunian Harold, Harold Saunders? Yes, uh, oh yes. Uh, yes. That work on refractive area development uh, in practice work. I thought that was splendid work. Janet Stone, I have a particular regard for working at the LRH, um, who many of the members listening may recall from the Stone and Phillips contact lens book, um, and her work on essentially it was, it, it was the uh, foundation of corneal reshaping for myopia control. Although they didn't, they didn't measure actual length, they didn't have ultrasound at the time. But, but the, you know, so there's a number of papers like yes, that, yes. pre-OPO, that were, were really quite, quite significant landmarks. So one should acknowledge there was already should, a, yes. a, a, an ongoing it was a, it was tradition. Presence, and, yeah. and it, I mean, it is interesting, certainly in one area that interests me. Um, it's always been ocular aberration, but Tom Jenkins, oh, was, Tom Jenkins was yes. based on his master's yes. thesis at Manchester, um, uh, is still yes. cited. Um, That's right, Yes, spherical aberration and chromatic oh, yeah. aberration. So there were some good papers there, which deserve to be remembered, I think, and Absolutely. looked at again, yeah. often forgotten by the younger generation. I, I think it <laughs> is one of the problems now with web of knowledge and PubMed and so on. The, the younger end, to put it that way, I think everything started in 1980, you know, when all these things came in, but there's, but there's a lot of very interesting work yes, on, yes. on before that. And, and where the technology was really very basic and quite limited, yet, yet still the con conceptually there were excellent studies. So the continuing <coughs> development of optometry as an academic discipline, say beyond from into the 90s and, and the 2000s, do you think that was a continuing process of internationalisation and collaboration? Do you think there's anything else that has helped uh, optometry to develop as an academic discipline in that time? Well, I think it, the, the major factors have been what have affected every discipline. You know, the digital revolution has 
affected everything, hasn't it? Um, I mean, in this but, it, but certainly yeah. for me, that's one of the roles of the OPO yeah. is to help optometrists seize onto new developments yeah. and to widen the scope of practice. I mean that if you're passive and merely rely on things continuing the way they've always been, then you find other people who come in and um, are muscling in on your mm. patch. That's and, right. I mean, yeah. contact lens is an area which quite early on optometry and others too staked a substantial claim, um, whereas on the continent, um, in many parts of the continent still, it's the field of ophthalmologists mm. rather than optometrists. They managed, you know. So all the time you've got to uh, be looking for ways of enhancing your patterns of pro, uh, your practice and um, new developments, new, new responsibilities, it seems to me, um, if you want optometry to can thrive and flourish in the future as in the past. So we think that that's helped uh, the discipline as well, the fact that these things now being grouped together shows that there's whole, there's areas within areas, it's not just optometry anymore, presumably as a discipline, there were so yeah. many different parts of it and presumably things like the uh, virtual issues and the feature issues represent that, is that fair? And we've got a, com- it means we've got a confidence and an awareness to be involved and to lay out our shop window if you like. Uh, and, yes, uh, I mean most of the areas are essentially interdisciplinary areas, mm-hmm. aren't they? So there's always, you can't have optometry sitting out on the right, on one side in, with a big fence around it. You've got to interact with these other people. And um, I mean, I think that's the attractive feature of, um, uh, of anybody working in the area, that psychology, physiology, all these, uh, pharmacology, all these things um, impinge on uh, the practice of optometry. and. Um, that's where the fact that now, and I think the OPO and its predecessors deserve credit there, that optometrists or people with an optometric training can compete as equals and join in as equals in so many, in so many discussions with people from other disciplines. It takes time, but the sort of um, divisions between, say, ophthalmology and optometry have largely dissolved away, in this country at least. Yes. Cooperation is the name of the game rather than competition. I mean, I don't know what the statistics are, but in, in that regard, it'd be interesting to have some sort of statistic on how papers that have had co-authors of ophthalmologists and optometrists mm. has increased over the years. Mm. And uh, it would not surprise me if, if there was quite a marked increase there. And, uh, and of course, papers that solely from ophthalmology departments. I think that's a very interesting development, which I'd just like to talk a little bit more about. Um, the current editor of uh, OPO, David Elliott, uh, suggested that earlier on, and sometimes still, optometry research feels that it needs to be published in ophthalmology journals because of the nature of impact factors and the nature of getting research out there. Uh, do you think that optometry research should be published in optometry journals? Do you think it's not that simple? It's not that simple. Uh, well, I think that... I'm sure Ben would agree, we are part of a larger community. Optometry isn't a little isolated thing with the outside mm. world completely separate. So interactions by publishing in other journals are important. I mean, the, the key thing, and one thing which has changed over the years, is, of course, with whatever the 
um, peculiarities of modern bibliographic techniques and putting in things in the computer and lists of things. But the opt uh, ophthalmic and physiological optics is out there, and many of the citations that a particular article will get from the OPO are of course in other journals yes. so it, it, there is always going to be this sharing but, but I think it's appropriate that depending on the content and so on that um, you know, it might be in, in all sorts of journals that um, you might be talking about vision and driving and you might want to put it in, in a sort of um, uh, a motoring type of journal or whatever um, you know it, it's horses for courses I think and that's, that's that's a very good thing. I mean, uh, just as some of the people publishing in the in journals like Ophthalmic and Physiological Optics will be from different disciplines outside, and only too happy because they know to publish in the OPO because they know they're going to have an audience who will appreciate what they have to say. So I think you know it is a it, it, it's it's a broad field, and you expect to publish in a number of different yeah. journals. What I do think though is that it's appropriate for talking in UK terms um, for UK researchers to continue to support the OPO yes. because clearly uh, it's their journal, it's the college's journal mm -hmm. and I think it's entirely reasonable that it should figure on the uh, selection of journals that people um, publish it. And, and also uh, the, the, the audience a given journal might have and the reviewing process a particular journal may employ. Um, it's always nice to feel when you go to a journal that you will get an informed review on, on your material. Um, and, and I mean, that's a judgment the authors will make. So there's, there's that, that aspect as well. What I wouldn't like to think is that there was a distraction from OPO based on impact factors. Now, I mean, we've, we've sort of pulled away from that a bit now, haven't we? So, so maybe that, that's not too much of an issue at the moment. But, but I, I, would feel, I would feel a little unhappy if, if there was um, a deflection on that basis. But the whole issue, which may, hopefully we may not get into, the whole issue of impact factors, mm. I think, has to be, um, one has to be very careful in how, sure. how that's interpreted. And certainly with the research exercise, research, the government's, uh, UK government's, Research selectivity exercises, the RE and the REF, um, they do state that they will not use impact factors. They mm -hmm. may use other bibliometric methods of assessment based on citations, but not specifically impact factors of journals, because it's of the journal, of course, not of the actual articles. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, debate which will no doubt go on. It's, I suppose it's easy to not care about the impact factor when you have a good one. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, so some of OPO's classic papers, which are all available on the OPO website now, these are papers which have quite a lot of citations and we thought it good to sort of bring them together into one place just so that people could see uh, some element of a legacy of optometric research, although of course there's many other things which are hugely influential without uh, citations. But an interesting thing about these papers is that some of them are original articles and some of them are review papers and although this isn't just an issue for optometry and possibly for academic research more generally uh, do you think that the balance between these two types of paper is about right in academic journals at the moment or do you think there is too much of one and not enough of the other when it comes to re review papers and to uh, original research? Well, well there are some journals that are wholly review journals um, progress survey of ophthalmology which has a very high impact factor mm. for that reason because you know it's if you're doing literature searches 
as um, in preparation for publishing an article, it's very nice to have an article that's covered most of the material. So um, those articles do, do tend to get cited. But in the normal course of events, um, what do you think, Neil? I think it tends to find its own level, doesn't it? And, and of course, yes, there's an editorial so, control as well over it. Yes, yes. I mean, uh, I do, uh, although perhaps one might feel it's easy to get, and might, one might sound a bit grudging and say it's easy to get a lot of references to review articles. Review articles are enormously valuable to people at all sorts of levels, out and out researchers, just ordinary people in practice or whatever, as giving an overview. And if they're good review articles, then they do more than that. They evaluate, they point new directions, mm -hmm. they stimulate additional research. So I wouldn't want to write them down uh, at all. And I think um, uh, and it's quite a time since I've been editor, <laughs> so I can say it. Um, I think that the OPOs had quite a good balance yes. in that respect. Mm -hmm. I like to see, um, you know, a review article um, certainly every few issues uh, because, as I say, it does give you that overview and very often a stimulus to saying, well, actually, he says or she says that um, that's not been investigated in the way it ought to be, and let's have a look at that. That's a very interesting idea. Has anyone followed? No, they haven't. There's an opportunity, um, which is really, of course, why we read any article, isn't it? It's nice to know what people tell us, but it's also um, a stimulus to say, well, gosh, that's, that's interesting. I could yeah. do something there. And so, so the, um, the cited articles, the classic papers you refer to, I think it, it's not, not a third, a third, a third split, i.e. a third reviews, a third original um, experimental work and a third say instrument comparison. I don't think it's quite a third, a third, a third, but, it, but it's split fairly evenly. And I think that reflects, reflects nicely the you know, range of... But of course the other thing, I mean the other thing which we can, the college can <coughs> congratulate itself, is if you looked at those hundred citations or whatever they are, you'd find they're in all sorts of yes. other journals. Some are from the OPO, yes, but the majority almost certainly are from other uh, journals and people who aren't British optometrists have come along and read that so, and of course added to those formal citations are all nowadays all the downloads that people make. Yeah. Um, if you yeah. look at the, um, uh, the publishers, ask the publishers how many downloads and they're perhaps by a factor of 10 greater for these papers. Mm -hmm. So again it's a tribute I think to the fact that the journal does interact attract international mm -hmm. interest. And in fact, you've got this on the website, haven't you, for, 19, for 2014, you've got them. Yes, yeah, so I think we do have these downloads? figures and stuff. Uh, um, I think downloads continue to, to got, be very promising. Pay, to very the good, top yeah. 10 papers for Yeah, absolutely, that's there too, as well as the classics. So yeah, we've got <coughs> a sort of uh, classic from history and then modern <laughs> classics, I suppose you'd call them. Um, so they have their place, certainly. Did you find yourself more excited while editing the journal about sort of original articles rather than review papers? Did you, or, or indeed in your um, research careers, did you find yourself more excited to be reading original research than review papers? Or? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a difficult thing it because, is. you know, we all have our own private enthusiasms and, um, uh, you know, it's uh, difficult to sort of generalise. I think, I, I think one's always, at least for me, I'm always excited by something which does seem to be going on 
out in a new direction. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you take, I must be careful here, but take a field like myopia. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess it would be fair to say this is a very large number of publications mm-hmm. over the years. Some of those have gone off in a totally different direction. Others are useful, valuable, quite properly archived, but are repeats Mm. in one area of the world of stuff that's been done in other areas of the world. And so it's it's adding useful fuel to the fire, but it's not lighting a new fire, is Mm -hmm. what I'm saying. And and, and the new fires do have a Mm -hmm. particular attraction. Actually, this is going perhaps in a different direction, but um, it relates to myopia, not just myopia work, but other work as well, because there's there's always the balance between animal work and and human work. Mm. I don't know how... How did you feel about that, Neil? Did you... I I did get animal work submitted, and I think there's Mm. more coming in now, Mm, mm. um, maybe because of the areas, the the research areas that are now currently fashionable, but... um, there was never from the college a restriction on No, no. It seems to me that one has to concede that progress in particular fields is best achieved via a start with animal models. Mm-hmm. You might say, well, um, should we be doing this? Mm-hmm. But if you believe in advance with all the... Uh, what is it, the three R's? I can't remember. Replacement, uh, refinement... Reduction. Thank you, Ben. Uh, <laughs> um, but there's a very tight control on, on yeah. animal experimentation. And if you're talking about, I don't know, transplants, if you're talking about, um, if you're talking about uh, implants for refractive correction, that sort mm-hmm. of thing, it does seem to me that starting with animal models is a natural way of going forward. I mean, I, I mean, I would like to see one of the things that, um, who knows in the future, may be a possible, is checking presbyopia or, mm. implant or refilling the crystalline lens or putting in some other mm. flexible lens or whatever. But, um, but I certainly would hope that people had at least started with an animal model first before mm. doing it on the first human yeah. being. So, you know, I, I just think it's a necessary thing which... I mean, there'll be a number of the membership listening to this who, who have been attracted to the um, recent ideas about myopic control with the manipulation of peripheral refraction rather than mm. central refraction. But there's a, be a number of that group as well who may not fully appreciate that the original work was done mainly on monkey um, and tree shrews. So you know, there, there was a there was a very much an animal basis to to. To what we're seeing there now. Uh, in terms of then the legacy of some of the papers in OPO, we <coughs> talked a little bit before about some papers which have been hugely influential that have led to things that you know um, are used all the time now. Are there any other either of these classic papers or any other papers that you can think of that maybe some of our membership might not be aware were effectively the origin of some of the processes which they will they will do the vast majority of times when when people have an eye examination or when with a very standard procedure. Are there any particular papers that you would you would highlight having been published in OPO along those lines? What to me seems quite a revolutionary practice, which is the uh, OCT um, and the, the way the retina can be examined now. And the number of practices now that seem to be 
you know, having taken on board on, on CT, but I can't recall, I'd like to be able to say I could recall that there was some major paper on OCT that figured in OPR, but that, that doesn't... Well, I was looking at that, and one of the things that there were quite a lot of um, papers on was um, in relation to autorefraction, yes. um, which is pretty standard technique. Yeah. I mean, uh, oh, yes. you might say to... Um, yes. Uh, Quite a lot of papers in the old BJPO on the early development of contact lenses. Um, Frank Dickinson, a whole series yes. of papers, and yeah. and so on. Um, although perhaps it hasn't come into ordinary practice, but a lot of papers on aberrometry. So I think they are there, um, uh, you know. But then again, of course, you've got to say that this is because we're part of a worldwide community, it's a cross-fertilisation process on an international scale rather than a national scale. So, One thing I'd like to say is because we, we've talked about Neil in 1980 onwards and then, then I came in, came onto the scene, but we, we should say, and we've mentioned David Elliott, but we should say something about Professor Christine Dickinson. Oh yes, indeed. Who, yeah. who was editor 10 years, which did a splendid job. Uh, so, so, so not, don't, don't let's forget. No, absolutely. I mean, would you like to say? Can you say maybe a little bit about um, some of the things that OPO published in well, that time? Well, I, I, I can't. I have to say, I can't give specific examples. But, but certainly the flavour that came through. Christine was very much low vision, mm. um, principally low vision, wasn't it? And, and yes. cer certainly she developed that aspect. I mean, I, I was probably probably that was to one side with my I, I don't recall doing a lot on low vision in my term but I think I think Christine developed that very well I do I do remember that I can't give specific examples yes but I mean um, one thing I, I think probably the OPO can take some credit for is the um, aspect of accommodation mm. um, we've got two in that collection of um, mm -hmm. star papers and um, the idea that accommodation isn't exactly accurate mm -hmm. whether myopes have bigger errors the circumstances mm -hmm. whether this matters you know does this impact mm -hmm. on development so I think there's been a lot of contribution it's been to, a that, lot, a lot, to that yes. area yes, um, yes, yes. And, um, including your own work Neil of about press myopia and well, I mean, it's all part and parcel. Yes, very much so. Um, youthful accommodation becoming less and less adequate as you get older, and of course, when you think of what, if you like, the the bread and butter of the average patient is, it's an awful lot of it is presbyopia-related work, mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's where I think. Um, I'd like to see perhaps a bit more work in the journal on some of the smart spectacles that can change yes. power and one thing and another because, you know, technology is moving forward and again, it's an area which mm. optometry could get involved in. Okay, so we'd just like to talk a little bit about uh, research conducted in practice and using practice data. Uh, do you think, not just an OPO, but generally, do you think that uh, research sort of conducted in practice and using practice data, original research of that kind, do you think it's received the attention that it deserves? Do you think it's actually been given the credit that it deserves? Well, we have iPro now, don't we? Um, and it, the college's practice-based research for sort of support facilities. And that's been going for a number of years, isn't it? Yes, yeah, sort of five or six. Um, I, w I couldn't say I have any feel for the for what that's produced in terms of publications. I'm sure it has. Absolutely. So there have yes, been publications. Three or four, yeah. 
but um, you know the, the actual details I don't know but IPRO is one initiative from the college but there are others aren't there there's lots of opportunity I think now for practitioners to, to mm. get involved it's, it's just you know with the day to day stresses of practice life it, it's not easy and um, you know there are good examples um, of of where um, it's worked um, Jonathan Pointer I can mention his name particularly um, actually supervised his PhD and he, Jonathan was a welcome research fellow at Cambridge for five years yes. so he had a very a very established research traditional research background so a postdoctoral researcher at Cambridge and then went into practice so it, he, he had a had quite a start if you like in into writing papers and publishing research so in some ways it's not fair to to cite him as an example. But, but Harold Saunders, but, we mentioned earlier, Saunders, is an interesting example yeah. in that he used data for his, from his own practice and uh, to do cross-sectional studies of the changes in refraction with age. Mm -hmm. And then he got in contact with people across Britain and about seven or eight practitioners provided records and looked at longitudinal changes. Yes. And that work was all practice-based yes. data. Excellent. And it does raise the point in my mind, which I always tried to uh, get across whenever I've talked to, talked to much of audiences, that there's an enormous yes, amount of data. And perhaps in these days of computer um, uh, recording and so on, perhaps that data could be used more effectively, yes, you know, if, yes. if common standards of recording and so on could be um, applied. There might be many problems which um, could be approached yes. that way. That, yes. You know, there are real, real opportunities as well as, of course, I mean, I, you know, for um, individual practitioners to make use of particular approaches and, uh, on, um, uh, in techniques and so on. And, tell their fellows of the results. I think there's an awful lot that could yes. still be done yes. and yes. I think the college is doing doing its best to encourage it but um, still a long way to go. And it's encouraging this activity with the Philip Cole Prize mm. for example. I mean, yeah. research. Research well there was an interesting yeah. article, another one comes to mind by O'Leary and um, Bruce Evans and one or two other authors on prescribing habits yes. in, in practice. Yes. And that's a very interesting point, you know, if you have a child with a refractive error, should you correct it? Mm. Should you not correct it? Does it matter yes. you don't correct it? Yes. If the child says, I don't want to wear spectacles, yes. you know, it's, it's an area where up and down the country, um, individual practitioners are facing this problem on a daily basis and to bring that sort of information together would be very valuable. And, and what's pushing this along as well is the advent of professional doctorates. We have the, the professional doctorate program at Aston and we're, we're getting uh, doctoral awards coming, starting to come through now. I think Bruce Evans at London University, Southbank University. Yes. Um, I think they, they, they're also coming through with their first professional doctorates. I don't know about the other institutions mm -hmm. around and about, but there, there's another way in which the practitioner, because that, that will be in practice research where, rather than going into the institution. So, so uh, it, but you know, the challenges of practice, the economic challenges, all the pressures of practice, it's not easy. Um, but then that's perhaps the value of things like undergraduate project work, yes. at least to give him a first foot on the ladder. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, certainly, in um, coming back to the OPO, um, has been over the years 
uh, papers which have originated in undergraduate yeah. student projects. Yes. Um, a number of, much to my mind, have been very good articles, yes. either as dissertations yes. about a particular topic or as, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. or as uh, original research work. I mean, I remember Neville McBrien and um, Derek Barnes writing yes. one on the development of refractive error back in the mm -hmm. 80s. Now, um, as some people may know, Neville went on to be yes. head of the department at um, Melbourne, oh, and, uh, uh, but um, doing quite advanced work in that area. But um, mm -hmm. I think that was very valuable mm -hmm. in uh, helping to draw attention mm -hmm. back to mm -hmm. this fundamental question of why people actually do need mm -hmm. spectacles. Mm -hmm. I mean, not all in the tropic. Uh, if I could turn now just briefly to the future. What do you think OPO and optometry generally should focus on next and what paths are we heading down and what paths should we be heading down in terms of research in optometry in the future? Um, I think collaboration has to be, I know it's a well-worn <laughs> word, but uh, collaboration, and we touched upon this earlier, Neil's mentioned it uh, several times, collaboration with other disciplines and ophthalmology would be an obvious one, but there are lots of other disciplines as well. And I think rather than address one particular problem, then um, use collaboration to tap into a range of expertise. And there's no doubt about it, optometry has a, a unique and specific range of expertise that it can, can be valuable in any number of questions. Age-related maculopathy, for example. There are some aspects of age-related maculopathy optometry might want to just step back from, but, but there's lots of others that it can contribute uh, immensely with. How about yourself, Neil? Are there, there areas that you think optometry could be focusing on in terms of research? Are there things that you think in, in 10 years we'll, we'll know because of the research sort of currently being done at the moment? I think all these things are more likely to be incremental than mm -hmm. uh, but there are so many new tools these days mm -hmm. for, as, um, as uh, Bernard was referring to, things like optical coherence tomography and all its ramifications, mm -hmm. the fact that you can now see the whole section mm -hmm. of the front of the eye non-invasively mm -hmm. at extremely good uh, resolution, magnetic resonance imaging where you can see the mm -hmm. back of the eye, mm -hmm. uh, as in yeah. your work on mm -hmm. the shape of mm -hmm. eyes, changing the way the lens changes mm -hmm. and so on. So those more fundamental things, and I think, who knows, we're talking, we're mentioning briefly ophthalmic photography in practice, but I was reading uh, uh, that um, it, there's a lot of de devices based on the cameras and mobile phones available yes. now. So you can essentially turn any, almost any instrument into a photographic recording thing. Yeah. So if you can see it with the naked eye um, through the appropriate instrument, yes. you can yeah. put the camera in and so on. And I think that sort of ability to document and uh, track, um, I don't know, let's take contact lenses, you know, you, you look for corneal staining as a function of time or whatever, you know, you'll be able to document so many things with very straightforward equipment um, uh, and send the pictures wherever you want to yeah. and so on in a way that um, we're only just beginning really to um, uh, to deal with um, and that in itself as far as clinical practice is concerned I think will help to make changes but, uh, but I mean I think coming back to the the general question it would be a bold person who said we're going to go the forward there <laughs> Yeah. The important thing is, 
that we should all keep our ears to the ground yeah. and seize those opportunities that do come up. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, you know, that's for the o- OPO and other journals to flag up where those exciting new areas are. I mean, the intriguing thing is, I think talking about things like, um, as we were a moment ago, about um, whether or not the pattern of uh, refraction in the peripheral field might influence myopia development. You know, already people have seized on that idea, done a year or two of trials at least, and so the rate of progress can be surprisingly quickly, it's mm-hmm. quickly it seems mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. Do you think we'll see a lot of research into with the development of all these different digital devices and all sorts of different tests for how to um, uh, photograph someone's eye and do all sorts of other things? Do you think there'll be a lot of research into how these things compare to older tests and whether they're actually appropriate, whether they work, whether the best way, how to interpret them? Do you think that might be an avenue for Oh, research? I'm sure validation of the of methods and so on will go on. But again, if, as you get older, you realise how much things are changing already. I remember when I first came into optometry in the 70s, I'd say, well, you know, how many uh, opticians actually have field testing equipment? Mm-hmm. And um, my colleagues would say, well, they're all supposed to have it, but most of them will say, if you ask them, have you got any? They'll say, well, I think there's um, this, this sort of black thing somewhere <laughs> in, you know, in the cupboard, Jerry's uh, uh, yeah. screen. That's right, but they never actually used it. Digital palpation. That's right, or, uh, absolutely, precious. yes. You know, and uh, everybody's got their air puffs at least. And dilation of the pupils. Yes, yes rarely used. Absolutely, yes, yes. So I think there has been such a, oh, a change, amazing. and as you say, the change. recording and... Um, new instrumentation yeah. coming in, the fact that you can take a slice essentially yeah. through the retina and see what that yeah. otherwise and ophthalmoscopically just looks like a blob. You yeah. can actually find out something about the detail. It's quite extraordinary really. I think where we, we have done well in, in thinking in recent times now is visual ergonomics and visual performance with, with the new information technology. And I think that's an area that you know we, we can do very well in. You know, the background of optometry feeds into many aspects of vis- visual ergonomics. Um, I don't think 3D virtual reality has taken off quite as much as people envisage. I think it, t- it takes it's off taken every off 20 years and then it dies yeah, again. Yeah, yeah, there's a currently a new wave of interest, isn't there? There's a new wave, yeah, yes, it's uh, lurking, isn't it? Yes, so, yes, give it time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Around about Christmas time with new TVs and that it all starts to... <laughs> Get very exciting, but but I think there's an area we, we can we can do very well. Okay, so OPO, as we said at the beginning, uh, is 90 years old, and uh, researchers are part of the college's royal charter, and the legacy of OPO has been secured by a huge number of contributors, much like yourselves. Are there any innovations you think that OPO and the college could lead on next that could um, happen in the future? I think that's a very difficult one. Eh? <laughs> yeah. And we, we, I think the journal has responded to, been drawn into and responded to extremely well with the current management. Yes, I to, think all credit to, to David, the, yes. To the uh, online access, for yes, example. Yes, You know, I think, I think the, these need management, and I think, I think they've done a very, the college, you know, and the, and the current editor did an excellent job there. Uh, and it's think, very I, impressive, that website. Um, and I think the virtual issue idea, for yes. example, is a is a way of getting added value really from the um, very much uh, so. from the uh, original art. And also, and it goes back a little to some of the points that were made previously. 
I'm very pleased to see the joining together of the three optometry journals. I forget what title we've given them, the Hot, hot Optometry Journal. <laughs> yeah, from what's hot in optometry. Hot in, uh, <laughs> yeah. I think it's very nice to see that working together. I mean, I would like to see, I don't think it's going to happen, but I would like to see, because the number of optometry journals has expanded, I think we have six now, is it, in the current ophthalmology subject group of JCR, General Citation Reports. It would be nice to see a specific section for optometry, but we would only have six journals in it at the moment. But mm. but there may be maybe some room for negotiation there to get to move out of ophthalmology and have a more specific subject grouping that maps perhaps better to optometry. I don't know. I'd have, I'd have to think about that. But um, and there are some advantages in being some advantages, part of the yes. wider group because you know if you set cut yourself off, then some of the users of the yes. ophthalmology is, yes. will not consider you as being part of the, the club, as it were. Yes. So yes. I, I, don't, I don't feel strongly about the, that. Um, and yes, that's true. And it, it has expanded the ophthalmology group. I think when we were mm. it, it, sort of fairly stable at something yes, like yes. thirty-eight journals or something, yes, it's yes, now fifty. Yes, that's right. Yes. The window, if you like, of OPO as it, at the moment it, is that it presents to the outside world is excellent. Very good. Okay. Thank you very much, Professors Bernigo Martin and Neil Chum. Thank you. Good.